You are the Yoda of abdominal tumors. The right amount of drunk for this. This is serious business. Greetings, the future is not so bleak, so grab a drink because this is serious business. I am Jeff, your host for this week's episode, and tonight we have a special guest. Yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, our, joining us uh, for this episode is Michael Solana, who has written for Wired and uh, has a young adult sci-fi novel, Citizen Sim, Cradle of the Stars, published by Thought Catalog. Uh, Michael, how's it going? It's going well. Thanks for having me, guys. This is awesome. I can't wait. Yeah, no problem. Thanks thanks for agreeing to come on. It's, it's really great to have you. So, um, I tend to ambush people with an intro question. Oh, God. And I thought for a little <laughs> while about, uh, about what question to ask uh, in light of your writing. And uh, I decided for, for a big one, if you need a few minutes to think about it, no worries. Um, mm-hmm. If you could live in any depiction of the future from anything, which depiction <laughs> would, you, would you live in and why? So, I mean... Am I? I can't. I can't say something that I've written, right? Uh, yeah, I would. I, yeah, no. That's 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 actually a good point. I I should exclude things that you've written. It has to be written uh, by someone else. Oh, I've got one. I've got one. Uh, mm-hmm. It's definitely. I actually just know this is a uh, Robert Heinlein. Um, Robert Heinlein tells an entire series of stories, or he has an entire series of stories that follow this character Lazarus Long, who is one of my favorite characters ever written. Uh, he's just this sort of ostensibly immortal, like gruff older guy who's like mm-hmm. oversexed and funny. Um, and uh, in Highland's future, there's this sort of family of anarchist leading, like, very smart, very sexy, curious space travelers. Mm-hmm. And they colonize planet after planet and build it. And they make these, like, sort of little utopias as they go. The utopias sort of, like, grow up and become less utopian. Mm-hmm. And then the family sort of moves on to the next planet. And they explore the universe. And, and that's, I think, the one that I would want to live in. Nice. I think that's that's an excellent choice. It sounds like a... A good sort of. I mean, Star Trek is like also yeah. not bad. <laughs> Star Trek's pretty good too, I guess. Uh-huh. Yeah. Except for the Borg, which really frightens me, and I don't know how the Borg have not destroyed the Federation yet. That just seems like really insane to me. Like at any moment, I feel like that could happen. So I, I'm not a Mother's Jones about that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's a little too, too close to home. A little too close to the Cold War, I think. Yeah. Is what Borg that is one was all about. Well, cool. Thank you for answering. And uh, it is customary, but not not mandatory, to be drinking something on This Is Serious Business. So I have to ask, what, if anything, are you drinking this time? Yeah, well, I have two drinks because I, I wasn't sure what the break situation was going to be here. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so I just have, I just have two lapitas, and they're open, and they're, like, ready to go. What about you guys? Uh, oh, well, we'll get to that. We'll do, <laughs> we'll do our rounds. We'll do our rounds. But, uh, but cool. Thanks a lot. And uh, joining us as well is Rob. Rob, how's it going? Uh, Jeff, uh, it's going well. It's hot again. I feel like that's, that's all I report back to the podcast, but it's that time of year and it's sweltering. Well, you moved to a hot place, Rob. I did. I did. <laughs> did. If you can't take the heat, Rob. I know. I know. I know. I'm, I'm doing my best, but I'm being honest. It's hot. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, keep it together, perhaps with uh-huh. a nice, cool beverage. So, Rob, if you could uh, live yeah. in any depiction of the future, mm-hmm. which depiction would you choose and why? Man, this is really tough. And even with the time to think about it, I'm not sure. Was the Golden Compass the future? Where you have like the the it's soul alternate pet? dimension, I think, right? Oh. Because okay. I think at one point, don't they come into, in the Golden Compass, don't they break into our reality somehow? 
Oh geez, I only saw the first movie. I so. only read the first book, but my sister read them all, and, and she and she would talk about okay. this. Okay, so I guess that doesn't count. That's not the future. Hmm. We'll split well, some hairs. We'll, we'll say no alternate dimensions. Okay, it's got to be okay. the future. Well, Put the heat on. I feel like there are a lot of like um, sort of uh, attractive options as long as like you're in the right tribe of people. Like, right, of course. If it's mm-hmm. like the time machine, like if I'm not one of the Morlocks, okay. Mm-hmm. Cool. Or Elysium, if I'm on Elysium and not on Earth. That sounds pretty good, too. So, yeah, as long as I'm rich and uh, beautiful, I'm down. It doesn't really matter as long as... You know, if I'm if I'm at the top of the dystopia, yeah, it's, it's okay. I'm I'm a little yeah. I'm not as intrepid as as Michael. Like I don't feel the the need to explore and like share <laughs> share joy throughout the universe. Like as long as I'm comfortable and I'm not like <laughs> like half a robot with like six arms and like dying of cancer or something in underground. Like I'm okay. All right, yep. all right. No, I I respect. <laughs> I feel like- Probably respect your honesty. One of the really rich planets in Firefly would be a good place. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Oh, yeah, Firefly. Yeah. 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 Okay. That, would, that would work out really well for you, mm-hmm. I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. Uh, so <laughs> yes. what, What if anything... Are, yeah, that was my backhanded yes, and little end to that. Yeah. Yeah. I, think, I think that would be good for you, Rob. <laughs> yeah. Thanks. Thanks, um, Jeff. So, Rob, what, if anything, are you drinking this fine? Uh, I'm dr- I guess I have... it's afternoon for you. I'm sorry. Uh, it's afternoon, and I did pour a little whiskey, but, like... As I'm, I don't mean to keep harping on this, but the, the heat, and I'm just looking at it, and it's like, I don't, I need to add soda or something to it, because it's too hot. Mm-hmm. Loads I need, loads it's not cold, yeah. yeah, I need something cold, I might grab an ice cube, but uh, yeah, so we got a little whiskey going. Uh, well, keep yourself cool, Rob, keep okay. yourself cool. Uh, so let's see, what, what future would I live in? I think I'm going to go with Luc Besson's Fifth Element Future. And oh, yeah. That's yeah, sweet. Yeah. I like that. No, I, I think I, I like that future because everything is gorgeous and stylized and amazing, and everybody takes it for granted. Like, New York, <laughs> New York is portrayed very much as New York. Like, Bruce Willis lives in his little apartment, his dinky little apartment. He drives his cab that's falling apart, and he's so unimpressed with everything. And mm-hmm. everything that the audience sees is incredibly impressive. And I want to live in a future where everything is so impressive that we take it completely for granted. Mm-hmm. That's the future I want, I think. Yep. Um, no, I feel that. My only reservation with the Fifth Element world is, like, is Mila going to be there? Like, she's just so cool. I don't know mm-hmm. that it, it would be as good without her. That's true. Like, if, if, if she is there, I, I think especially, you know, if she could be... You know my my like best friend, my quirky mm-hmm. best friend. Of course. Yeah. Well, I'm. I'd also be concerned <laughs> about like the giant skull cloud that's going to kill everyone. <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, no. I'd see, be, I, I'd be concerned. I want to be divorced. I'm like, will I have a best completely. friend? And you're like, there's an apocalypse coming. <laughs> yeah. no, Relax. No. I want to be like an everyday schmo. I don't want to. I don't want to be part of any of that. I want to just live there. I think. Yeah. It, I think it'd be nice to see these gigantic buildings with their flying cars. Because flying cars. I mean, it's just. It's just so classic, and that movie like did it in such a cool way. No, I think I yeah. want to. I want. I want to live. I want to be there. I want to be in that New York. And I am drinking a Dogfish Head Pumpkin Ale. Ooh, I like uh, that for the fall. Yes. Intemperate climate, right, Mr. Boston? Yeah, no, New England. You know, despite the fact that it is soggy and gross and has a winter that lasts five and a half months, <laughs> it has great beer. <laughs> I feel uh, like there's a reason for that, perhaps. Yeah, maybe. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. So, let's actually start with a little bit of book conversation. 
I'm about two-thirds of the way through it or so myself, and I have been enjoying it immensely. It is the cost of a single burrito, and it is <laughs> absolutely worth it at that cost. So uh, go check it out. But let's actually start, Michael, by asking you about your inspiration for this book. There's a yeah. lot that yeah. goes into young adult science fiction, particularly these days. It's, it's sort of a big... Yep broad subject. So uh, so what made you decide to go that route? So I started writing literary fiction when I was about 20 years old, and it took me sort of five years to finish my first book that was a total failure. And, Sounds um, normal. Yeah, and, <laughs> and it, it was somewhere, it was like towards the end of that process where I started asking myself this question. I was like, why am I writing the stuff that I don't even like to read, right? Like, I, I sort of, I mean, literary fiction once in a while, but, but the stuff that I loved was all genre. It was science fiction, it was fantasy, it was horror. I loved the comics, I loved superheroes, I love just anything, sort of pulp fiction. And th this sort of bug got in my head, and I definitely had sort of, like, the background. Like, I, I, I just sort of consumed all of that material my whole life. And I just started, th I don't know, I just, it was just, it just sat there, just, just the question, like, what would I, what would I write if, if I just put this, shitty literary novel away and, and just wrote something completely different. And uh, one day, I was in New York City. This is I used to live in New York. I was an editor at the time uh, for Penguin. And I was walking home. I used to walk across town from the West Village to the East Village and take the one back to Brooklyn. And along the way, there was a movie theater. It's right in Union Square. It was my movie theater. That's one I used to hang out in. It's ultimately a movie theater that I, I wrote about in the book. And I was standing on the corner of, I think it was uh, University and 13th, looking at the movie theater, and there was all this traffic, and I thought, I just, not even thought, I just saw myself, I just, out of nowhere, just like, leap over the traffic, and it was this question I had all of a sudden, it was like, wait a minute, why did I do that? And this weird premise just popped into my head, which would become the kernel of, of the story that I wrote, and it was like, well, I'm in a video game, <laughs> duh, obviously I'm in a video game, and to make the video game believable, I had to live an entire life for, you know, 25 years or 26 years not knowing that I was in a video game. So when the video game activated, it would be like incredibly exciting. And so now I have superpowers and probably in a second aliens are going to invade and uh, it'll just be like the greatest video game that anyone has ever experienced. So that was this weird, you know, kernel. And then there are just a million more questions that sort of came after that. I, I put it away for a minute. I finished failing at my literary novel and then I went back to it and I just started asking the questions. It was like, well, it wasn't really me jumping over that traffic. Who was it? And it was this. It was this boy, and he was this little blonde boy. And I was like, "What was his? What was his? What was his deal? What's his story? What is this world like? What is a world like where simulated realities can exist? Where you can have incredibly complicated video games? And and if you can have technology that allows a person to be born into a video game, um, to live an entire life unaware of the fact that he's living inside of a video game." Are there maybe more practical uses for that sort of technology? Like, mm -hmm. would, it, would it probably not even be a video game that you're inside of? And then I started thinking about simulated realities a little more, and I sort of stumbled onto the simulated realities Wikipedia page mm -hmm. and uh, blew my mind and sort of took it from there. That, that was it. I, I, I ended up wanting to tell a story. I had a premise. I wanted to tell a story about a hero trying to save the most important piece of technology that, that had ever been built, which is uh, total simulated reality. I thought it seemed like... Mm -hmm fun. Yeah, I have to say, you know, I, I'm, I'm of the opinion that Wikipedia is basically like the first wonder of the digital world. And oh, it's I so think, good. I think for writers in particular, it's it's just an absolutely astounding tool 
that um, you know, I'm sure any any science fiction author from the past hundred years, if they if they saw Wikipedia, they would be like, "You guys have it so good!" <laughs> like, yeah. "Oh my God, that yeah. is that's an inspiration machine right there." Right. Um, well, it's it's good and bad, right? Because it also just it just like takes you completely away from what you're working on. So you uh, start with simulated realities, and then you end right. up on like Pokemon, and uh, <laughs> from Pokemon, it's like, <laughs> Japanese culture in, at large, and yeah. then you're. Like it's like yeah. schoolgirls, and you're right, like, right. Where, well, where am I? How did uh, this happen? I'm still convinced that Doctor Who makes up like 8% of all of Wikipedia. Uh, <laughs> it's like, uh, you, you're right, you do have to be careful of that. So yeah, well, one of the things I really loved was the fact that you chose to make this reality something of historical significance as yeah. opposed to just a, you know, a, a vehicle for entertainment. So I'm glad that that came from, uh, from a place like Wikipedia, from, from a place of kind of learning and, and deep interest. Like the story itself, what I always tell people, it's like, oh yeah, it's a story about a boy who wakes up on his 15th birthday with memories that don't belong to him. It's crazy. We don't know where they're coming from. With them, he builds a machine that turns him invisible. And then his entire life is a race. It's crazy. He goes on this adventure to find the mysterious hacker mm-hmm. and figure out what's going on in all of this. But it's like a sort of like Wizard of Oz type tale. But, but really, yeah, it's, it's about simulated realities. And it's about the, the premise is, is like, what if we lived in a world where you could live an entire life, an entire life in a week? And you sort of like, you go to bed and you enter, you're born into this, into this historical moment. You experience history. You don't read about it. And then you wake up not just having a sense of what happened, but knowing exactly what happened. There was another sort of theme. I started wondering, like, what is the perfect way to tell a story? Where does this end? We, we have film right now. We had, you know, and tele- we have film and television right now. Before that, we had theater. We have prose, fiction. We have video games. And people are always talking about what the next medium is going to be. Uh, I know that I'm very interested in, in what it's going to be. And I, and I was for a while before I even wrote this book. And I just sat down and I was like, what is, it, what is that going to look like? What is the perfect way to tell a story? And it's like the perfect way to tell a story is, is not to tell it, but to allow someone to experience a story, mm. to just live the story. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and it just seemed like the best application of that would actually be not only to tell a story, but, but to immortalize all moments of the human experience. Like from now on in, in this world, in a world with simulated reality, you can, you can freeze everything, every, everything that happens, and it will be recorded forever and relivable at any moment. And, and that just seems like really cool, a world that can't die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did you ever read a book uh, by Neil Stevenson called Snow Crash? By any oh, chance? Yeah. Yeah, oh yeah. 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 Yep. No, yep. it's interesting because yeah, there are some parallels between like the idea of the metaverse mm-hmm. and that and this. Only the the key difference, I think, with with yours, uh, your your sort of alternate reality, or I'm sorry, your uh, potential reality. Yes. Exactly. Is that yours involves a state of almost hypnosis? You you have to remove your you have to convince someone yeah. that they they are in it. Well, Whereas so his actually, is his is you know kind of this full kind of free agency metaverse, metaverse. where everybody understands what they're doing. But yep. uh, yeah. Well, the metaverse is sort of like it's like vir- it's like virtual reality meets the internet, and yeah, um, right. and I kind of I don't think that's wrong. I think that's right. I think we're going to that right now. I mean, I, I've tried the Oculus Rift. It's amazing. Like we're heading towards a world of the metaverse. It's just, it's just like certainly going to happen. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I kind of wanted to jump beyond that. Like right, in, right. In, my, in my world, that exists. We have, we have a sort of a, a metaverse-like thing. It's called the Vort. It's incredibly important. It's the, the most important piece of technology that exists before total simulated reality. And this was sort of, this is the next thing. I know I love Neil Stevenson. I think that he's, he's right about a lot of things, or he'll probably be right about a lot of things. Yeah, he was a huge influence on me, as were the Wachowski brothers, as was Grant Morrison, as were sort of like the older science fiction guys. So uh, I, I want to ask you a little bit about the fictional Johnny Clark, the fiction within fiction that is Johnny Clark. What was your... Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your inspiration for coming up with that character in particular? Like, was was there a, 
a yeah. sort of basis for that in terms of your own youth? Uh, I know I, I don't mean that. And he's, he's kind of a misfit. Um, yeah. Where did yeah. where did that all come from? This is a person who I who I, he and also Billy Bell is his best friend, um, who will appear again in in the second book that I'm. I was just working on this morning, actually. Um, yeah. <laughs> so I grew up in New Jersey, uh, on the Jersey Shore, and everyone has this really weird idea of what the Jersey Shore is now ever since the MTV show came out. But actually, the, the culture is pretty alternative. It's like lots of surfers and skaters and these burnouts on the boardwalk and just like beer and rock and roll everywhere that you look. So Seaside Heights burned down. It was uh, after Hurricane Sandy. It was like totally destroyed. And then they started to rebuild. And about a year after that, there was a fire. It's just, it's just gone. And uh, I grew up there. I worked there for 10 years. A lot of what informs like my sense of cool all came out of there. Uh, I love that place. And if I was able to write inside of a world where simulated reality existed, which meant that I could, I could bring back any one place there was and, and, and make it permanent, I wanted it to be seaside, and, and these are characters who are, are from that place. They're from New Jersey, and that was the inspiration for him. I, I, wanted, I just wanted to make him immortal. I wanted Billy, and I wanted Johnny to live forever, and I can do that now, and I'm going to bring him back again and again, and I'm going to go right to seaside in the next book and, and tell it even more of a story about that place. I think that, in a way, I'm lucky because of the weird construct in, in my book, the sort of like weird device in my book of, of total simulated reality. It's like it's spanning these simulated centuries, I can tell a sort of literary novel within a science fiction novel and and get away with it. It's not a deus ex machina. So yeah, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna keep doing that. Cool. So uh, I I do want to ask you a couple kind of more boring, details oriented questions. Yeah, let's uh, do it. C- compared to the inspiration questions, but but how long did it take you to write this? Oh, so it was great. So after I put away my literary novel, I went. I was in the middle of this weird process where I was maybe going to move across the country from New York to San Francisco, and this whole job opportunity popped up, and then it like fell apart completely. And I had gotten really excited about it. It seemed like this crazy adventure, and I really wanted to do it, and then it was gone. I didn't ask for it. It came to me, and I, then I said yes, and then it was gone, and it, it was like the worst dating situation that you've ever been in. Yeah. <laughs> um, no, I, and, I've, I've been there too. <laughs> yeah, and, and so I just I had this really rough November. And then I went home for Christmas, and I had a I had a sort of about, about a month off. And the original premise for that boy jumping over over the street when I first had the idea for the premise of the novel, I hadn't actually started to ask those questions. And I sat down and I was like, "Can I curse, by the way?" Uh, yes, oh, yeah. totally. Right. So so I was like I was like fuck everything. I was like fuck that stupid novel that I wrote. Fuck literary fiction in general. Like fuck that dumb job that I didn't get. Fuck the current job that I have that I hate. What do I want to be doing right now more than anything else in the entire world? And that was like I want to know where that dude came from. Mm-hmm. And so I, I actually wrote the first draft of Citizen Sim, Cradle of the Stars, in a month. It was just like I wrote every single day. It started as an outline. I just, the more questions that I asked, the more questions that I had, and it just kind of, it just blew up inside of me. And, and uh, at the end of the, at the first draft, it was about half the length that it is now. There had been a character, Layla Storm, who is uh, the girl in the novel. And she started out as just a guide, just this cool guide who I, I thought was, you know, this rad girl I'd want to hang out with in, in the future. But at the end of the novel, the very last seconds of the draft, I, I had this thought about her that reframed everything. And, uh, and she became and will be the, the hero for the whole entire story. Uh, she's a much bigger character. She is, I mean, the entire story ultimately is about her. It will follow her. And that process of redrafting the first novel took about, I would say, altogether about five months. Mm-hmm. I, wound up, I went up moving across the country. That job actually did materialize. And I put everything on hold for about a year and, and picked it back up. So I would say, yeah, a month for a draft, six months to make it good. 
what's what it took is the short answer. Sorry, I just gave you the long answer. I love the long answer. That's my problem. That's, that's, my, that's my, <laughs> my chronic problem. That's that all right. I, with, you know, podcasts are a great format for long answers, so uh, I'm, I'm happy to hear them, um, hear all the details. So, uh, you know, the, these next questions may be slightly less comfortable, but let me know if you're not comfortable answering them. Is writing, you know, is this turning into something that you you view as a, a career moving forward? Like, is, is this what you are going to be doing with yourself? Like, is it sustainable? Yeah. So I don't think of myself, how do I say this and not sound like an asshole? Uh, so um, it's less about writing for me mm -hmm. uh, than it is about storytelling mm -hmm. uh, and narrative. Narrative is incredibly important to me because I believe that, that storytelling provides people with ways of being that they were not previously uh, able to access. I think that if you tell a good enough story about a, a, a character that, that triumphs over sort of like X, Y, and Z, a reader who loves the story enough will also then be able to, to achieve what that character did, or will at least be able to think about it, which, which will help them. Writing, I, I originally picked up prose just because I couldn't find an artist for a comic book that I wanted. I had written a comic book. I couldn't mm -hmm. find an artist. It was really hard. And I was like, uh, you know, film obviously seemed 10 times harder than that. There were so many more people involved. Yeah. Uh, so good luck to you guys. Um, and I was like, again, fuck this. This is ridiculous. I'm just going to write prose. And then it took me about 10 years to learn how to write prose. Yeah. Uh, I'm writing because this is, this is the most effective way for me to tell a story. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I'm going to keep doing that for the rest of my life. Like this is certainly – I've thought of myself pr primarily as a storyteller since I was in high school. I, it's, it's pretty much always been – been this and it will always be this. I, I think everything else I do in my life enriches that I hope, or at least that's what I'm, I'm trying to do. Uh, but this is my this is my focus. Mm -hmm. And uh, tell me a little bit, if you can, about the uh, the publication process. Did you uh, mm -hmm. did you submit to Thought Catalog? Your, yeah. Your, so what yeah. what actually happened was um, I had an agent right around the time that I was moving to San Francisco. Mm -hmm. And publishing process is insane. You need to write a book and then find an agent, and your agent needs to find an editor. Your editor needs to persuade your publisher, publisher, or sort of your editor and then your PR person in, in house have to go and persuade the sales team at whatever the publishing house is to. To, uh, to sell the book, then the sales team has to persuade book publishers to buy the book in bulk, and then you have to convince journalists to write about it so readers know about it, and then hopefully they'll buy it. And it's just this like, long, insane process. And I was going through it. I was like, here we go. Let's, uh, let's start this long, insane process and, and be a part of it. So I, I found my, ed my, my agent. Uh, he pitched to a bunch of publishing houses, traditional, big, huge, gigantic publishing houses, and I uh, got a lot of rejections, of course, as everyone does, uh, and then a couple of people who were interested in the book two in, in particular, really liked it a lot. One wanted me to rewrite it completely for a much older audience, and one wanted me to rewrite it completely for a much younger audience, at which point I said, fuck this. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I was busy. I had just moved. I didn't want to rewrite it. I thought that I had written the novel that I was supposed to write. It, it was there. I, I saw it. I, I loved it. I believed in it. Mm -hmm. and I, I just put it away for a while. About a year later, I had started writing for Thought Catalog and uh, just blogging for them. It was fun. It was an outlet, creative outlet. And uh, I had been doing that for a bit. They started a book imprint and they wanted to read it. And then it is. It's just like a sort of, a, they're a small press, a small publishing house, except they have a massive following online that they can publish directly to every single day. I think this is a, a pretty interesting new model. I thought it was a pretty interesting new model back then. Submitted it. They liked it. Uh, they wanted to publish it. I got some cool artists to do the cover and they edited it. The rest is history. Yeah, is it is it pure ebook or uh, any, any uh, print circulation yeah, at all? Yeah, uh, paperbacks come out at the end of this or November fourth. Uh, their pre sales are open now, so you can go ahead and for the cost of, I guess it would be like one and a half burritos. Um, <laughs> you, you can get you can get the paperback. I'm glad that you have uh, 
have jumped on the burrito metric. I feel like that's that's the greatest metric for entertainment oriented yeah. purchases. Is, 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 oh yeah. Is this worth X Y Z amount of burritos to me? No, uh, no. I, yeah. I don't ever want to hear another metric. Yeah. No, glad to hear it. I did want to maybe mention how Michael, your your views on uh, on the technology and wanting to communicate all these ideas in the novel certainly does that, but. I also wanted to like wave the flag a little bit about like how I don't even know what the word to say is like just how le- legit the writing is and like how entertaining it is as a piece of entertainment. How uh, impressed I was there. A couple of things uh, I didn't wanted to mention in particular is one is that I really enjoyed and I, I I knew this about you of course, but that you lived in New York and there are several depictions of parts of New York that are just awesome. Uh, I love the underground station. I, I thought that was amazing. You have a great sequence in which Johnny is chasing Spock through <laughs> uh, all those screens, which I thought was really inventive and cool. And then at the end, too, and uh, Jeff, I don't think you're there yet, and I'll keep it kind of vague, but there's uh, a description of the end of New York in the sort of the the chaos and the partying that is happening at the the end of the I think it's the fourth chapter. Yeah, the party um, at the end of the world. Yeah, party at the end of the world, which was maybe some of the best writing I think in the in the entire book. And it's just a description of how what that looks and smells and tastes like, and um, it was really impressive. And uh, I also I should have jumped in when you were talking about uh, Seaside and um, Johnny in particular was that I really appreciated that we don't get to see this too much of him, but you describe him as kind of like a little snot, like. <laughs> um, he's a he's an internet troll. He like lives off soda, especially early on in the book. I kept thinking back to Harry Potter, and, and I was thinking like, well, it's very easy to get on Harry's train, right? Like he's an orphan, he's abused, he's lonely. Like it's very easy to grow a hero out of that. This conversely, I felt like if you met Johnny, you might not necessarily like him in normal circumstances. Yeah, and I thought that maybe growing hero out of that is much more interesting probably more rewarding and uh, i'm glad to hear that uh, we're actually going back to that environment and back yeah. to his his jerk friends because like <laughs> i think i think uh i think exploring that more uh will only enrich sort of uh alter ego galen's journey and and sort of focus that lens on seaside and in that environment as well so yeah well done man i Thanks. i really really enjoyed it and as great as all the the big, broad technology things that we talked about, I think it w- just works on an adventure and an entertainment level, too. And like I said, the writing chops are real. So, yeah, yeah go. I, uh, I, just, I actually just want to say one thing about that is when I started writing the book, I, I was never even thinking about, you know, the, the stuff that I wrote about in Wired. I was thinking about just I want to tell I want to tell a story that I, I love. And there are obviously all of these enormous complicated ideas that are not mine they're sort of like the simulated reality stuff and the like advanced or not advanced really but like sort of like future history type stuff i thought like what if i just i just want to write for the first the first book i always conceived of it as a series like i wanted to just write sort of like a pop song is how i thought about it i wanted it to be so good i hate when writers and i hate it so before i ever thought about technology i was thinking about about writing and i hate when writers sort of like speak above their audience or, or, or try and Mm. that's the wrong word because I feel like you can be a strong writer and not an asshole. Okay. Um, (laughs) I, I, I think that your job as a writer and is, is to just 
take a reader on a journey. And especially in an adventure novel, I, I wanted it to be so good. I wanted it to start with this strange little place and then grow with the main character sort of along the way. And, and by the end of the novel, be ready for, for this larger story that I wanted to tell. But my most important goal always, it's, it's not to sort of like be a propagandist and be like, hey guys, like we should really care about the future and about technology and maybe stop writing dystopian science fiction realities that we're going to end up accidentally creating. Uh, it was like, I just want to have, I, I want you to have fun. I, I want you to really to love this. And the only way that you can do that is by writing about people who you love. And Johnny is an asshole. He's a little, I guess not an asshole. He's more of a little shit, I think, than an yeah. asshole. Yeah, um, he is. yeah, he's more of a little shit than an asshole. But there's this like little beating heroic heart deep down inside of him. And then, of course, there's Galen behind that. And I think that's, I don't know, that's a lot of us, certainly a lot of us as teenagers. I don't know. I'm glad that you, I'm glad that, I'm really glad you enjoyed it. I can't tell you how much it, it means to hear people talk about this book out outside of my head, right? Like you, you said, <laughs> for, for so long, you sound like a crazy person. Yeah, and, every, and people would, yeah. People would ask me what I was dream. doing. Yeah. And I would be like, well, I'm writing. And they'd be like, cool, how's that going? And I would, I would try and talk about the characters or something and their eyes would glaze over. It would look just like someone does when, when you're telling them about this weird dream you had last night. Yeah. And, and you realize that as, as a writer, you're just, you're totally alone always mm -hmm. until you publish your work. And then hopefully, hopefully someone reads it. And I'm fortunate that I, you know, I, a couple people have read it so far, and I just love that. I love that it's real. It's a little bit more real this way, you know. And I love, I love to hear you. Thank you for, for having me on. Thank you for reading oh, my man. book. Yeah, yeah, no problem. <laughs> awesome, man. Well, on that note, I think we are going to take our first refill break of the episode. So. Oh uh, shit. Yeah, we will. We will BRB. <laughs> We're back. So, at this point, I want to actually talk, shift gears, shift gears away from uh, the book and talk a little bit about your Wired piece. Just, just to, just to frame it a little bit. You know, did you, did you come up with the title of that yourself, or was that edited in? Yeah, no, 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 no. Uh, that was the editor. I think it was just like a very good clickbaity. Um, yeah, that's, that's so a I've good word. Catalog, that <laughs> I've learned from Thought Catalog that if you just, if, if your title. It, is telling the reader something to do yeah. like mm -hmm. don't do this or do this everyone will hate you and it will be become like this enormous <laughs> firestorm yep yep uh, my, my original title was how to escape our dystopian house of horrors before it's too late and they were like yeah no <laughs> that's not happening right um they gave us you know stop or what was it like why you should stop writing yeah no, it was like it was. stop writing stop dystopian writing dystopian fiction. Yeah. yeah yeah it was it, i mean I, I don't want to say it was bad because it did its job i think it was excellent like the, my editor was great she was mm -hmm. smart and right and it got a lot of eyeballs on the piece but um it misrepresented i think the content a little bit yeah so so how about you give us a quick kind of summary and then we'll dive into discussing it so i, I think yeah what i basically think is first we're living in a a really highly negative moment for science fiction. I, I think we've been living in the same dark moment in science fiction since the 1980s. I think it, it's been like really, really dark s since then. Basically since, I, I think that, I don't want to say that Neuromancer called, caused it, but that's like the sort of good, that's a good, that's a good place to, to begin is Neuromancer. I think that, that, that shit got really dark back then. Uh, also even, you know, sort of like across all genres, even in superhero storytelling, all throughout the comic books, things got really, really dark in the 1980s. So, so sort of one, things are dark in science fiction. Two, 
Some technologies, I think space travel in particular, have decently positive narrative frameworks for thinking about them. So we have like Star Trek and Star Wars or whatever, and people are excited about going to you know different planets. I think that Elon Musk's f- recent fame really sort of exemplifies this. People are excited about space, yeah, space because and, because they have stories. Yeah, yeah they have SpaceX, but they have stories that they can they can relate to. Space is understandable, but there are all these technologies that are incredibly important that that we have we have. We have no positive narrative frameworks for thinking about. So artificial intelligence, nuclear fusion, longevity, hyper longevity. So like living forever. Why do we all believe that we have to die, right? Well, there are all of these scientists working on like ending aging and, and, and everyone is terrified of it. It makes, it makes absolutely no sense. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, and on things like nuclear fusion, it, especially like, like this is the most in- energy is, is the most Im- important problem we're facing. And like windmills are not going to do it, guys. Like that's just like not going to be it. We need nuclear power. We need a lot of it. And, mm-hmm. and we need people to sort of, it's not that they don't, we need them to not be afraid of it. We need to have a story, a, a story that helps us understand how this works out in a positive way. Right, and I think right. my point three is actually that I think that there's not some big crazy plot and science fiction writers or, or sort of these recent science fiction writers are, are out to get us and to sort of tell us stories that are ultimately going to harm us. Mm-hmm. I think that they're just lazy as fuck. And I think that, <laughs> um, I think that it's incredibly easy to write a, dysto- a, a dystopia, a dystopia. The entire premise of a dystopia is that one thing happened that ruined the entire world. So, so like one, it's easy to conceive of. It takes no imagination whatsoever to think of one thing that destroys everything. And now you have zombies or a nuclear Holocaust or like evil robots, whatever. And then, two it provides a constant source of of friction your your protagonist is is like always being like someone's always trying to kill your protagonist in a dystopia it's like it's like there's so much drama there and and people are just fucking lazy and that's and that's it so fuck that we need something it's not that we need something new it's that like uh we deserve something new Um, so i i actually have a couple of points i want to make because i've been thinking about this for a long time and i i think i agree with a lot of what you're saying, but not exactly how you're saying it. Okay. Because <laughs> uh, I, I think part of the issue is less about technology and more about the establishment. You know, one of the reasons that Star Trek is so optimistic is because the establishment are the good guys. I think part of the problem... Like the Federation? Yeah, the Federation. You're, you're basically rooting for the Federation. I mean, it's, it's, it's uh, you know, proto-utopian in a lot of ways. But... Uh, Communist is another way to describe it. <laughs> I actually, I don't know if I would say that. The, I, I would say it's closer to Buddhism than communism in a weird way. Also, well, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. Yeah, no, they're, they're not. They're both. not. That's true. But but the point is that I think the issue with a lot of this fiction has a lot less to do with technology and a lot more to do with how the establishment is framed. I think the basic nature of a dystopia is that you create an establishment that is the enemy, and that can be for reasons that have to do with technology. Or it can have to do with uh, anything, anything socio-political, anything economic, anything like that at all. Like the Matrix, for instance, your your protagonist starts off as a hacker. He is he's highly technical, but the the thing he's ultimately fighting is the establishment. It is right. the Matrix. It is the illusion. So I I don't know if it's uh, so much that that there's any technophobia involved here, and I think that's that's why I'm glad that we cleared up a little bit about your title because that that's sort of something that framed this. I, I kind of read your piece and I kept thinking like 
Is he talking about technophobia? Is he talking about dystopia? Because dystopias aren't inherently technophobic. A lot of times people use technology to defeat a dystopia. And yeah. in that way, technology is viewed very right. positively. I mean, I, I don't think the problem is that yeah. we have so much dystopia, weirdly. This is why it's like sort of the opposite. I, I don't care about people writing dystopia. I think it's dumb and lazy and we have enough of it, so it's pointless. Uh, but so are the Kardashians. Like, I don't want them to be, you know, put in jail or something. Like, let them exist. It's fine. I, I think... The, the problem is that no one is writing the other stuff. And, and so, like, that's, th that's what I, I want to see. I, I understand what you're saying about the, the establishment. You're saying that, 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 that maybe we're in a more anti-establishment moment than a more anti-technology moment? Is yeah, that, that, that might be the case. Uh, and I think I agree with you in that, like, I, I would like to see more fiction where Jack McCoy is our hero. Our, our law and order, you know, the DA, the lawyer who is mm -hmm. prosecuting, the guy from the system is who we're rooting for. Because that inherently has a positive view of the system. Um, and if you take futurism into account there, if you take, like, looking at uh, something that hasn't happened yet, looking at a society that may be, and the establishment is something that we're happy about, I think that basically does what you're talking about. Yeah, so this is maybe goes back to my point about science fiction writers not thinking enough. Um, because I think that we have, I agree, so I am, I'm, I'm sort of like a like a soft anarchist, honestly. Like I'm I'm I really hate the establishment. I'm like very very well, that's anti. Interesting. That's interesting. I'm like anti right. the establishment. Yeah. Not a big fan of the establishment. Right. So if if you don't like the establishment, but you're also an optimist, what do you do? And then you have to think of a new way of existing in the world. Mm -hmm. And that's just like that's like really it's just hard. And I'm sure that I'm wrong about like you know 90% of what I've written because it's really really hard to plan the future. But you have to at least try. I think as a science fiction writer, you have to try. And show people something. You can't just say, "Yeah, Democrats and Republicans are the same thing, and we're always at war, and like we're being spied on, and it's really scary and bad." Yeah, obviously, right? Like we all know that. Um, what's a better way to exist? That's just a lot harder to, to plan that out, to right. think of that world, and and where you provide drama as a writer, or, or where you could, I think, is is you build this this alternative way of being. Mm -hmm. You build this 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 future utopia, and you believe in it, but then you place it at risk. And that's the source of your drama. And, and that provides you with, uh, I think, the potential as a writer to make a promise to your reader early on that you're going to tell them a good story, mm -hmm. that you're going to take them someplace better, and then to see it through. Because the problem that I have with almost all of these dystopian science fiction worlds is that not one of them ends any place that I would even that I would want to be. I mean, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, does any of them end? Like, like so what's no. the point of even reading it at that point? They're, they're all horrible. Like, it's still bad at the end of the book. It starts bad. It's like... It's like potentially, I guess, apocalyptic, but then it you survive, and it's but it's like still pretty horrible at the end, you know. Like you the discover world's... the power of friendship, and like <laughs> that makes yeah. everything better. Yeah, right. Yeah, you sled into Christmas, literally. Yeah, that does, that <laughs> yes. does happen at the end of the Giver. That's yes. that's like the end the of the Giver. Giver. He sleds yeah. into Christmas. Yeah. Um, yeah. But I would really argue, I would argue that The Giver is actually a really good dystopian novel. I'm in agreement I, with both of you uh, uh, on uh, a number of different levels here. What Michael is saying about dystopian being lazy and um, reductive, though, really hits home because, like, uh, I know I try to keep up on what the crisis, uh, you know, what's threatening our real life right now, and like, I'm tired. I'm so tired of like the last man on Earth story because like we have the opposite problem like there are too many people and like there are so many movies and i do come from the a will smith movie. story yeah the will smith yeah. story oblivion um you know it goes on it's a thing i mean even i, I just jumped back into uh the walking dead 
just because they, they posted a new season on uh, Netflix and I've been bored this weekend. And like I'm watching it and like I, I haven't enjoyed it in years. And I, I'm, I'm like, well, wh- why are people still watching this? And I, I do think that there's like a morbid attraction to yes. like starting over. Yes. Or yes. something, you know what yep. I mean? I, I think we like the idea of it more than we're willing to admit to ourselves. Where we j- we're kind of ready to like crumple up the piece of paper that is right now and be like, "Hey, wouldn't it be great if like I didn't uh, have to pay uh, my rent anymore, yes. and uh, uh, I didn't have to pay for groceries anymore, and uh, not in my relationship anymore, and I just have to like take this like sickle and like make my way down the street?" And it's like I. I do think that there's people are responding to that, and people. I don't see people talking about right, because it, it that makes, being attractive. It makes less complicated reality. That's the entire yeah. problem. Like that's right. what, it just simplifies yeah, everything. It it's totally reductive and just like it's stupid. The, the bigger problem is like I think what you said about population based. The sort of the last man problem was it's so interesting. I hadn't thought about it exactly this way before, and I think it's so right. The, the bigger problem is not being alone with a thousand zombies on a, on, a, on a city block. The bigger problem is like, we're going to have to feed 13 billion people in the next century. And like, how do you, or like right. a century from now, I'm, I'm assuming that it's going to be sort of, maybe it's not that high. I don't know what quite the overpopulation <laughs> the population numbers are going to be, yeah. but it's going to be like billions and billions who right. don't have food. Like, how do we do how that? How do we do that without GMOs? And, yeah. And, yeah, and right. so we'll, yeah. we're, I don't even, so, I mean, we can talk about GMOs. That seems like a different podcast, but I'm pro GMOs. I don't have a problem mm. with genetically modified. Like, let's do it. I'm let's let's, too, let's yeah. just like GMO every, like, I love it. Genetically modify everything, including people. Um, so we don't get cancer, <laughs> right? Like, so we have to eat less. Like, let's just do all of that stuff. Right. Um, but it sounds horrifying because not because it's, at its nature, horrifying, but because no writer will ever tackle these problems because it's complicated. You, you have to, you have to, you have to provide a, a way of dealing with this that addresses all the problems. And I think the first one is, is probably this: is that we have a lot of people on this planet, and they all need resources, and we don't have enough resources. So, right. so we need right. more resources. How do you quickly make that no longer a problem? Well, we'll just kill everybody. Yeah, right? just kill them. Yeah. <laughs> or, just kill or you make things more efficient. You know, it's you know, I, I have a couple things I want to say actually. I do actually want I, I want to defend dystopia a little bit uh, because I, I agree with you in a very limited space. I agree that right now dystopia is overdone, but I, I view that more as a literary trend than as critique of the concept of dystopia. I think I think I like the concept of dystopia. I think there's a lot you can do with it. I think the problem is just the Hunger Games was really popular, so there are a lot of shitty knockoffs. Like <laughs> yeah, that's true. like that's and, and that's sort of that's sort of like saying vampire fiction is horrible because of Twilight and everything that came after Twilight. And it's like every, Twilight and everything that came after Twilight was horrible. Um, although the Hunger Games is actually good, uh, I'll, I'll say that. But um, but a lot of the knockoffs are not good. But but there's still plenty of great stuff that you can get out of vampire fiction. So I I do wanna I do wanna say like I I respect well done dystopia. I I do think that it's way way oversaturated and there's a lot of crap in there right now. But that you know obviously sub- subjective. Because there are good dystopian yeah, no, stories are. that Matrix I like. My, you know what I mean? Matrix is like my it is my one favorite movie. It is the one. Right. I actually and... I actually don't respect the Matrix as much as the dystopia. Oddly enough, I. Uh, I think I like my favorite dystopias are like Ray Bradbury, Fahrenheit 451. Yeah, dystopias. Those are good like, too. Yep. Brave uh, New World uh, is my favorite dystopian book. Yeah. But what's wrong with the Matrix? Can we have that conversation actually? We why can, we can briefly, why no, don't you I, like the Matrix? I, I think, I, think like I, I, I like the Matrix, but I think I, I respect it more as an action movie. It, it again, it follows the same paradigm of just like overcoming the establishment slash new start. Like it, a lot of the stuff that we were just 
harping on for being bad like so, can be summed up in the matrix uh, no but the matrix also has a superhero story which i love which is like right, it provides people right, with this, is, like way yeah. to being ultimate and powerful and amazing like that it's right. you start with nothing and you end with he actually does build something there like, you have to exclude the, the second two films and just focus on sort of <laughs> right, like no, the, the, the it's, it's a tight story but i view it more in that realm of like a good kind of action Suspense. Sort well, of I think it's a perfect. Movie. First of all, it's yeah. not good action. I think it's a perfect action film. Oh, it's a perfect action film. <laughs> I think it is the perfect. You think action that film. that the perfect action film with the guy whose name is Cipher turning out to be the deceptive betrayer? No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm okay. <laughs> I, I, I thought I mean, that was a little heavy-handed. Yeah, but I saw it for the first time at 15, and yeah, I, 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 didn't, I didn't know no, what Cipher was. <laughs> no, and, and, and just, just to clarify, like I am not saying that the Matrix is a bad movie. I'm, I'm just saying that I don't. When I watch The Matrix and enjoy it, I'm not enjoying it because of the dystopia commentary. I'm enjoying I, it yeah, because I think of it, the hero's yeah. journey. Like, like, because it's just a, a good, fun kind of action movie. I don't think it actually says that much about humanity. I, Whereas I, I think, think like, great dystopia actually has the capability to do that. Yeah. Right. I think what Michael is saying about The Matrix is, is absolutely true. It was so, like fresh and new and had uh it and still does have the potential to make this kind of like wonderful impression um about these ideas but i also find myself sort of not leaning towards jeff but i hear what jeff's saying too where there's something about the matrix and i don't know if it's because of the sequels but it it's place in sort of like uh, our zeitgeist has, has been watered down somewhat like I, I don't know if it's because there no, were so, so many matrix like yes movies after the matrix but there's something about the matrix that like when i think of like modern classics i don't know if i would think of it like in the first five seconds but it mm. probably deserves to be i think that this the second two the second two movies it, it wasn't even that they were bad it's that they were such a different thing that they yeah. they almost like retroactively tainted the first movie yeah. I, after i after i saw the third i was with my sister and we left the theater and i was just sad and i was like yeah. maybe maybe the first one was not even as good as i thought yeah. it was just be, you know i was 15 or whatever and and I went back and I watched it and no, I was it like, is. It's, nope, it's perfect. It's, it's tight. So the, first, the first one is a, is a so tight amazing. fucking movie. Like, yeah. it is It is well... I watch that movie whenever I'm drunk and I go home and I need to, like, watch something. It's like Matrix. I put it right on. I'm obsessed. I think it's, I think it's, I think it's great. And I think that... I don't know why it's not really taken so it, seriously. It's, it's become sort of a, like, a visual, like, touch point for, yeah. for in pop culture more than yeah. an idea one. Like, how many times are we going to see someone, like, bullet do, time. like, the bullet time? Yeah. Or that kid, but, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I hear what you're saying. But I know, I, I'm a surprise. I'm surprised every time I go back and watch The Matrix and how fucking great it is. And actually, it, I mean, this is, is another podcast, but I'm probably a defender of the sequels as well. I think that I'm a... I'm a okay, this is another, it's another podcast. It's another podcast. Yeah, no, no, we can't. <laughs> we can't. Podcast. We can't. <laughs> Yeah, we, we yeah, can't. Oh, man. I, I want to, but no, we have to resist. <laughs> Actually, let's let's take it a little bit back to technology a bit, because you 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 both sort of expressed being pro GMO, and I, I thought I thought that was interesting. I don't want to talk too specifically about that issue, but I do want to ask. Let's let's actually try to figure out why people are so scared about this stuff, or at least at least address it a little bit, because we're I feel like we're talking, you know. We're, we're, we're basically suggesting that people are too scared of the things that technology can do that, that they will need to do. And I, I, I guess I, I try to understand where people's fear comes from because I'm, I'm sort of a self-proclaimed technical optimist like I, or technological optimist. I, I like believing that technology can solve incredible problems that have a lot to do with kind of 
mm-hmm. human culture. But I, I do understand when someone hears about a scientist who's trying to, say, create a genetically unique organism. And that's the sort of thing that's like happening right now. Like, mm-hmm. uh, people who do genetic engineering have been putting together all sorts of interesting biological building blocks that they're now assembling into organisms that have never existed before that we know of. Great, um, love that. Yeah, but do you understand, like, I can see why there might be a little bit of pause, because, uh, it, well, I, I think, oddly enough, uh, if we were to use fiction, it's a bit of the Jurassic Park syndrome. No, but this is the problem. This is, yeah. So, you, you know, there, what are the reasons? What are the reasons people are scared? And this is the reason that people are scared. Right. We have, there are two things, always. It's, it's one, you have the creation myth that people are running right. up against, and that's, uh, this is, it's, I hate to, I don't want to be, too political, but it's like a sort of a, a liberal creation myth, mm-hmm. which is we, we worship like indigenous man and like, you know, he's, he's working off the land and it's like back to basics and all this kind of stuff. And then two, uh, you have a lack of a positive fictional framework for thinking about these things. So something like genetically modified organisms comes up and the, the only people who are speaking about it are the naysayers. The people who are excited about genetically modified organisms are actually doing it. They're not storytellers. That's what you have. I, I think that like it's honestly as simple as like, like most writers are both one pretty like generically liberal, which is not even to say like liberals are bad, but like that generic liberal, whatever that thing is, like they're pretty generically liberal. And then also two don't actually know a lot about science um, because they're writers. And so uh, you just lack it. It's like, it's just one perspective that you hear over and over and over again. I, I just rewatched Jurassic Park and I, I love it. It's one of my favorite movies. Yeah. That, that scene where the Brachiosaurus, you see the Brachiosaurus for the first right, time right, right. is actually my favorite scene in, in all film. But Everything that Jeff Goldblum says in that movie makes me want to like jump off of to a punch cliff. him in the face. It's like yeah. so bad. It's like it's just there's no there's no reasoned counter story to like why might we want to create food that grows you know ten times more quickly for ten times less energy. Right, but this isn't is there isn't there merit to the law of unintended consequences? Like that that's a huge pro- like uh, you know no. one one thing that people constantly do when they're trying to say control or manipulate an environment is they'll introduce a predator or something like that. Like um, th- there there have been a few successful examples of this, but but for the most part it screws things up. It's like oh there are too many rats here. Let's put some cats in there. And then you put some cats in there, but then this all is of the a Simpsons bunch argument. Of dogs show up. Like it's it's <laughs> it's it's not a Simpsons argument. Like it's it's the no, law it's, of unintended consequences is a real yeah. environmental biological con like concept. It's it's. And it, it does have merit. Like, we have screwed things up in the past by not being careful. You know? I think that this is like protection. It's, it's this weird, it's almost, it's, it's where liberalism almost becomes conservative because your entire point here is like, we can't affect our environment, but we affect our environment all day. We right, drive that's that's straw manning because that's not my entire point. My entire point is that, is that it should be done cautiously and respectfully. That would be my position. Is yeah, that, but, 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 the, but banning GMOs is not allowing it to exist at all. Right, but when did I ever suggest that? You know, that, that's what I mean. I, and I understand that there are plenty of people out there who, who believe you should ban GMOs. GMOs. Well, that's the um, major. And, and that's, that's the major. That's the major anti-GMO. Right. It's not just let's curb it. It's like let's not do this mm-hmm. at all. I can't believe we're living in a world where yeah. we could potentially be eating food that was genetically modified. Right. Isn't genetically? I mean, if if you just even select just with your hands, yeah. uh, sort of like you fertilize the sort of better plants over the the weaker plant, that's genetic modification right. in, in exactly. a way. Yeah. It's just not cracking right. it yeah. open. I mean, this is just. This is. I don't actually understand at all the argument against it other than in a sort of weird religious way like it's like you worship nature kind of way i don't get it right yeah i mean our modern banana is is the product of tons and tons and tons of of you know breeding every, that every was manipulated yeah you know that turkeys yeah. can't even 
you know, fuck anymore because like what? they've been yeah, turkeys don't have yeah. sex anymore because they've been <laughs> they've been bred um to favor large breasts and their genitals cannot reach each other anymore. Mm-hmm. That's <laughs> that sorry, might be a, like that might be apocryphal, but ever- that's what I heard. Yeah. That's it's, actually it's I mean and that that actually oddly enough is is an example of of problematic modification. You know, yeah, but that's yeah. just like yeah. the breeding. That's like people have been doing this forever, and, and right, exactly no about yeah. that. Yeah, 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 and that's right. that's that's not a reason we should stop it altogether. That's a reason we should take a look at it and figure out how we can do it better. Which I mean, I, I, I think everything with. we should try to be doing in a, in a safe way. Right. The, the problem is right now there's like this. There there is no there's no one saying, "Hey guys, let's get excited about genetically modified food." Isn't it <laughs> right. a cool idea? Yeah. And that is, that well, argument doesn't exist, which goes back to my dystopian thing, which um, you know I wrote the dystopian piece yeah. in, in Wired, and, and Wired, uh, one of the editors wrote a response to it, which was like, don't tell us we don't need dystopian science fiction, we do, and blah, 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 and it's like, yeah, fine, maybe, whatever, but you have a lot of that right now. My point is not, you know, we should just eradicate it. Uh, my right. point is that there's none of the other stuff. There's none of the positive stuff. There's none of the sort of like, hey, here's a really cool way that we could, you know, genetically alter all of these plants to end hunger. Right. Like, no one is getting excited about that in, in storytelling, yeah. and, and that's bleak to me. No, and weird. there are tons There are tons of Nobel Prizes that have been given out to people who have done exactly that, who have genetically modified wheat to make it, like, incredibly... <laughs> You know, the, the, yeah. uh, you know, save billions of lives uh, doing that sort of thing. So well, yeah, it's it's yeah. absolutely true. At the same time, though, I think I'm I'm slightly less gung ho just because there are things that have happened that are bad on account of this and that. What? You know, like uh, Jurassic Park? I no, feel like... no, 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 no. <laughs> Jurassic no, like, Park. Like, 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 Jurassic no, no, no. Park if you if you if you read any like Michael Pollan or anything like that, and you you look at what what happened to chickens when they breeded them to the point where they literally couldn't walk on their own. It's like that's 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 something we should not do. Like we should be careful about that. We should maybe not do that, but that's also not an apocalypse scenario. Exactly. That's, right. Like, yes. Global. Totally. 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 And again, that's why that's why I think you're you're you're. I'm I'm trying to inject maybe like a slight amount of caution as opposed to, you know, I, I'm not someone who would advocate the banning of genetic modification. I would. I'm someone who would regulate it. I'll mm-hmm. put it that way. Um, because I'm 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 of the opinion that there are tremendous advantages that can come with it. At the same time, though, if it is motivated by things that are, uh, if it, if if it motivates people to forego any ethics, then that's problematic. That's something that should be looked at. That I think is is the only cautionary point about a lot of this fantastic technology that can do all these fantastic things. Is that at the end of the day, it's people who are doing these things, and mm-hmm. people can be fucked up sometimes and you have to be extra careful if you create something that is really powerful and put it in the hands of somebody who's fucked up you yeah, know it's the, it's the wrong hands principle which yeah. drives a lot of these stories too so yeah totally but uh, anything in the wrong hands of, of anyone is, is going to be dangerous. Right. True, but, enough... but a nuclear bomb is way more dangerous than, like, a cherry bomb, you know? Yes, but, I mean, the blueprints for creating nuclear weapons are online. I know a kid who created nuclear fusion in his basement. It wasn't sustainable, but he created it at age 15. <laughs> I, I know him. I, we're friends. Like, he exists in the right. world. You can do this. It's scary, right? It's, like, really scary. Mm-hmm. There's There's sort of no going back, and that's why we need... We need some sort of like lighthouse, right? We need we need something yeah. guiding us to a, a better place. We need we need stories that that tell us a way to be that that will have a, a positive impact on the world. Yeah, no, and I think I think we can all agree on that. So on that note, I actually I do unfortunately have to cut us off um, oh, no. because because we have we've <laughs> run low on time. Fun. 
there is so much great stuff to mine here. At this point, I want to transition us into our, our segment that ends every episode of This Is Serious Business, and that is our Geek of the Week segment, where we talk about things we have been uh, watching, reading, doing, or playing over the past few weeks that have absolutely nothing to do with what we've been talking about for the last 45 minutes to an hour. <laughs> so... Uh, <laughs> I want to. I want to actually start with Rob on that one. Rob. Uh, oh. Uh, yeah, Lord. that's right. You're on the hot seat, Rob. Damn. So Rob, I'm rarely <laughs> first. For yeah. some reason, I, I always have like the great seat for Geek of the Week, and I get to go last. But now I'm first. You're first. Uh, well, I saw. Um, I saw Gone Girl last night. How was that? Oh. How was that? Uh, um, I didn't like it. Oh. Yeah. Really. And I'm a huge David Fincher fan, but something about this one didn't work for me. And uh, it was disappointing. And it's about an hour and a half. And it, I'm sorry, two hours, two and a half hours. And it feels longer. And it's, I don't know. I I feel like maybe the book and the story and the message is maybe aimed at someone older and more married than I am. (laughs) And and, uh, maybe it's working for them on on some level. But like, I don't know. I, I really love Eyes Wide Shut. And like, that's for married you know that that's a comment on marriage too. I don't know. This one was this was very strange. It's it's almost strange enough to recommend just on its strangeness. But uh, yeah, I mean, see it like Fincher is still the man visually, but story wise, I thought it was like kind of all over the place, which is disappointing considering how much I love like Zodiac and Fight Club and Seven, and I even like uh, Dragon Tattoo. But uh, I'm hoping that uh, for his next project, he doesn't you know like adapt a bestseller. I feel like. Mm. I feel he's been like doing he's, that for a little while, yeah. Yeah, so we'll see. Yeah, it's an interesting watch. It certainly got crazier than I thought it was going to get. It's like super crazy, but uh, as a story, it didn't didn't really work as well for me as some of his other ones. So kind of disappointing. Uh, I'm sorry to hear that, Rob. Yeah. yeah nah. And it was getting it was getting some hype. I know. Chris, hype. Kristen herself was so pumped about it. She wanted me to read the book and everything. Uh, I have to. I think she's. I think she's seeing it this weekend too. So I have to catch up with her. Maybe we'll we'll talk about it on a future episode. Yeah. Or something. Yeah. We'll definitely have to find out what she thinks. Um, cool. So let's move on to Michael. Michael, uh, what what have you been uh, what have you been up to lately? Uh, anything yeah. that you you'd like to share? Yep. Um, I actually do have one. I uh, I've been rereading a book called Super Gods by Grant Morrison. This is it's one of my favorite books ever. It's nonfiction, and uh, so Grant Morrison is the writer who. Let's see, what is he most famous for? I, uh, I mean, he's just a comics writer. So he's written All Star Superman. Uh, yeah. He wrote my, my favorite arc on X Men ever. Started Which one? In the, it, it started in the two thousands. It was New X Men. Uh, it was when everyone went into like the sort of black leather outfits. Oh, the, and oh, and there were yeah. sort of like lots of mutants all of a sudden. The school was packed. There was Quentin Choir and the Stepford Cuckoos and Emma Frost right. was like this total badass. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I, I mean, I'm just I'm obsessed with him. He he became pretty famous in the '90s, like comic like not famous, I guess like comic famous, nerd famous, uh, <laughs> in, in, in the '90s when he wrote a book called Invisibles, which is also awesome. And uh, this is his sort of like history of superheroes, and also his like kind of um, treatise on I guess the religion of them. He, he he's someone who has a lot of his uh, his editor at. Vertigo once said that Grant Morrison is someone with a lot of a lot of strong interest and a lot of weird shit and uh, <laughs> he believes that he was abducted by aliens for example he's a practicing chaos magician so there's a lot of like crazy stuff in there as well about the sort of 
I mean, he, he literally believes in superheroes. So oh, that's it's weird. It, it's like his what? It's this two. It's this double thing. It's like one, the most comprehensive, excellent history, just nonfiction, dry history of of superheroes and where they came from that I've ever read in my life. And then two, just this wild pop art, sensational journey through his crazy brain, and I love it. That's awesome. Thanks. Uh, thanks a lot for sharing that. And, yeah, uh, check it out. I I, I suggested I, I tell everyone to read this book. I just actually <laughs> bought it for my sister's birthday. Yeah, toss us a link and we'll uh, we'll throw it up on the Tumblr or something. Oh yeah, we'll do. Cool. Um, so let's see what have I been up to lately. I finally, finally, after several weeks away uh, from it, I finally started uh, season four of Boardwalk Empire. Oh, um, thank God. Yeah, I'm only I'm oh, only two you're still behind. In. I know I'm st- I'm still behind, but it's it's been fucking great so far. And I have to admit, and Rob, you and I have talked about this that that the show was losing me a little bit at the end of last yeah. season, but the time jump like brought me right back in and it's uh, very rare that i say that ever about time oh, oh. Jumps. wait i think we're on season five right oh, i'm now. sorry season five the most recent yeah. season yeah okay okay so the oh one yeah that's going on right now yeah um, okay that's five yep. yeah the time jump brought me right back in and i love i love when that show indirectly tackles history and yeah um their their sort of little nods to the beginning of the great depression have been phenomenal the sequence in the where where basically someone ends up shooting themselves at at the end of a very yes. unexpected diatribe yes. about Mickey Mouse is like so good. <laughs> yeah. um, I've been very very impressed so far. Steve Buscemi continues to have become that character for me, which is really weird to say because he's obviously played so many other roles, and for a long time he was just like the weird, you know, he was Donnie or someone like yeah. Donnie or the weird serial killer on Con Air. But now I'm like. If I ever, yeah, if I ever, or Mr. Pink, yeah, if I ever meet Steve Buscemi, I'm like, oh, that's Nookie Thompson. Like, Mm -hmm. he's never going to be anyone else to me anymore. Ah, Uh, interesting. Yeah, he's he's so good in that role. Uh, Are you completely caught up, or no? Just 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 the first two episodes. Okay, Okay, cool. I've really liked them so far. Yeah, Um, I I feel like they know that this is their last one, and they even have like eight episodes this mm-hmm. season, which is, like, way less, the episode orders. And I, I almost feel like they're writing this for... It almost feels like they're writing it for people who's, who've, like, stuck with the show. Yeah. Like, it feels like... It feels, like, really, like, pleasing in a way that prestige television is always sort of, like, frustrating because you're always like, oh, I want that one more thing, and I'm going to watch the next episode and see if I get that thing. But, like, every episode this season of Boardwalk Empire feels like we're building towards this, like, great satisfaction... Yeah, uh, and it's kind of been awesome. Yeah, it's always been a slow burn show, and I really hope that that you know slow burn builds and builds and builds into something great. Uh, we'll have to see. It does have a habit of having really great finales, so hopefully, hopefully, it's true too. on yeah. wood, there'll be a great finale here. So on that note, it's time to wrap things up. Uh, I want to give you guys an opportunity to make any shout-outs and to let people know where they can find you online. Feel free to plug anything. So let's start with Rob on on that. Rob. Uh, uh, where can people find you? And you have any shoutouts? You can find no shoutouts, but you can find me on Twitter at Heroes Are Boring. Cool. Uh, our special guest, Michael. Again, thank you so much for coming on. This has been thank a you, Michael. Really, really, no. really great episode. Um, thank you guys so much for having me. Yeah, no um, so, uh, any shoutouts? And where can people find you online? Yeah, sure. Follow me. Uh, follow me on Twitter at Mick M I C Solana S O L A N A. And just buy my book. Definitely buy my book. <laughs> Please. For the love of God, Please buy my book. Buy it's, called, it's called Citizen Sim, Cradle of the Stars. You can get it on Amazon or wherever else. 
paperbacks are on pre-sale. You should do this for me, please, God, please. <laughs> yes, no, do it. Seriously. Seriously, do it. It's worth it. So uh, you can find me on Twitter at TisbyJeff. That's T-I-S-B for This Is Serious Business. I haven't been tweeting as much as I should lately, Rob. you got to crack the, the whip on me. I've, I've been bad. I'm sorry. You can find this podcast online at TisbyCast.com, as well as links to our Tumblr, our Facebook, our MySpace, or whatever the fuck else we have. Um, <laughs> so as always, I have absolutely no idea how to end this episode. It's, it's too late to stop the god hack. So... <laughs> Amazing. I just, after you said that, I had this insane paranoia for a second that I had not hit the record button. Um, but I, I went and it's recording. Wow, that was, was like, I was like, oh my god. Uh, but no, thank god. The, the God, uh, the most embarrassing thing I've ever had to do for this podcast was um, well, read, 50 read, read Fifty Shades of Grey out loud. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I um, once, uh, so my first recording experience ever was on uh, at WCBU, it's a BU radio station, mm-hmm. and I had the 4 a.m. Wednesday time slot with my, oh boy. my freshman year roommate, <laughs> yep. and uh, he was like the music guy, and I was the one who just wanted to talk on air forever, and um, <laughs> so like, we, we had our skills, right? Uh, so it was it was placed into context for me, like the, the sort of like stark difference in who we were when I had to go away for my sister's older sister's wedding, and um, so he he recorded it by himself, and uh, and he had a talk, and and so I was um, I downloaded this sort of uh, the radio whatever it was I don't know what files we were using back then, and I'm listening to it when I got home, and it's just so it's like songs for a second, and then he decides he needs to take a talk break. He talks for. For 15 minutes, uh, over nothing, he just is reading out of the Communist Manifesto. <laughs> oh, no <way. laughs> like, That's like, just what he did. He just read, like, like, he was like this crazy, I think he was probably on drugs when it was happening. This is someone who believed that anything that grew out of the ground was automatically okay for you. Um, but it was good. I miss wow. those things, man. Oh, man. College radio is great. I, uh, I did. This is serious business.